here's some things we're against. Hidden fees, penalty charges, and higher rates that drain your household budget. At Michigan's Credit Unions, what we do can sometimes be best defined by what we don't do. It's how we offer lower rates on auto loans, lower mortgage closing costs, and a nationwide network of fee-free ATMs. To make every dollar you earn go further, go to a place that values you more. Click the banner to find a Michigan Credit Union. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist that contributed to The Hill in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Uh, BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political consulting and polling company, or you have any ideas or suggestions or any reactions to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon, all one word. Welcome to all the, all of you who are watching uh, on Periscope. Now, everyone can watch the show by going to Periscope D TV, uh, front slash Brad Bannon. You can also see the show on Facebook Live. Today on Deadline DC, we'll uh, review the Democratic National Convention and preview the Republican Confab. Uh, our guests today on the show are Amy Parnas, who uh, covers presidential politics for the Hill. And on a provocative progressive political panel in the second half hour, our guests will be Democratic strategist Tim Zink and progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Our guest in the first half hour is Amy Parnas, who covers presidential politics for the Hill. Uh, Amy, along with John Allen, are the authors of New York Times bestseller on the 2016 presidential race, Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doom Campaign. Uh, she and John, I'm sure, are now working on a book about the 2000 campaign, which will also probably be on bestseller list across the country. Welcome to Deadline DC, Amy. Thanks for joining us today. I know you must be very busy. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Never a dull moment these days. <laughs> no, there certainly isn't. And there won't be for the next uh, uh, 72 days and probably a long time after that for you as you're working on your book. Uh, there's no rest for the weary, is there? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, let's start with this. Uh, you recently uh, wrote an article for The Hill on the Democratic National Convention. 
and the Biden uh, strategists seem to be very pleased about uh, what transpired uh, virtually. Uh, what's your assessment of the uh, impact of the Democratic National Convention? They um, they seem very, very pleased. Uh, you know, the entire rollout of Senator Kamala Harris, they felt went um, swimmingly. They couldn't have um, pictured it or imagined it any better. They felt like their fundraising coming off of that announcement was exactly um, it beat their expectations, 48 million in 48 hours. And then that kind of rolled right into the convention. And there was some apprehension, I think, going into the convention. It was the first time they, they've clearly ever done such a thing, all remote. There were a lot of moving parts up until the very last minute. And so I know that they were feeling a little nervous. But I think for the most part, with a few glitches here and there, they felt like the week was a huge success. And so they came off of that week feeling really good. They felt like they had um, sort of proven to the American people they had made the case for why Biden should be president, why Trump is a danger to democracy. Um, you know, President Obama, Michelle Obama making very powerful, poignant speeches that proved that point. And the last night was clearly all about defining Joe Biden, talking about the empathy that everyone else had spoken about the week. Uh, in the week leading, the days leading up to that. And they felt like that had gone well, too, that, you know, even though people don't really know that much about Vice President Biden, they felt like they had given them a sort of history of who he is sort of before he was vice president. And and the money coming in after was um, phenomenal in, in the words of one um, source that I spoke to. And, and so they're pleased with that. And I think that that's sort of why they feel like they made the case. They feel like they are in their leading polls, they feel like they're in a very good position with 70 days to go. Okay, uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, what the, uh, the purpose of a, a national convention is to send a message to voters. What do you think was the central message about Joe Biden uh, that uh, viewers and observers of the Democratic Convention received during the four-day festivities? I think it was a couple of things. I think for, for starters, it was that a Joe Biden presidency will bring America back to sort of um, a normal time again. And that Vice President Biden, the former vice president, is a pretty normal guy. They told the story about how he took Amtrak home um, after he lost his, his wife and his daughter in, in a deadly car crash and how he wanted to be there every night for his sons um, and sort of how he did that for years. Um, and, and that he put his children kind of first. He kind of handled as a single dad, handled working and taking care of his children. And then sort of how after he met Jill Biden, uh, the former second lady, how that family kind of came together and they were able to, um, you know, come together. And, and her the, the speech that Jill Biden gave, I think, was very informative because it kind of gave a picture of how a broken family kind of um, comes together and can heal. And I think that was a larger metaphor for where the country is right now. Um, the country is broken, and um, but Joe Biden can come in and, and help to heal it. And he is this sort of voice and this healing, this empathetic guy who can help kind of, you know, help the coronavirus um, and help the broken economy and, and rising unemployment. And um, so I think that they successfully made that case. Uh, 
You know, it seems to me that uh, I agree with you. I think uh, the central message the Biden campaign was trying to send during the convention was that with Joe Biden, uh, you have a calm head and um, a uh, uh, empathetic presence in troubled times. You know, the probably the most startling poll figure I've seen in the last few months, and I think it was in the Wall Street Journal NBC national poll, was that 80 percent of the voters felt the nation was spiraling out of control. Mm -hmm. And my sense was the Biden campaign was trying to say, hey, listen, uh, we need a soothing presence and a steady hand uh, in tough times. Uh, Yeah, I guess uh, yesterday I read a statement, I think it was from Peter Navarro, uh, who was um, a Trump uh, in the Trump administration. And he said that uh, Americans are looking for uh, someone tough like Donald Trump in troubled times. And, you know, that clearly is the message of the Trump campaign, while the Biden uh, campaign during the convention was oozing with empathy, uh, which I think is welcome to voters. Uh, do you do you agree with Navarro that uh, they're looking, you know, Americans are looking for, you know, a tough guy to take them through tough times or are they looking for a calming influence that Joe Biden can offer? I think they're looking for a little bit of both. I mean, you you think back to the primary, Brad, and you and I spoke a lot during the primary where um, voters really wanted a tough person to take on Trump. They felt like and and Joe Biden ran on that. Um, He ran on the fact that he is the right person, the best person, the toughest person to take on Trump. And and that is sort of his that was his platform throughout the primary. And so I think that Americans, you know, there's still some question about Donald Trump keeps trying to raise this um, this issue of, oh, is he is he all is Joe Biden all there? Is he all there cognitively? And, you know, I think that Americans really want to see and voters really want to see Biden kind of turn it up and be able to prove to Trump that he can he can be that guy while being the empathetic guy. And I think that his speech on Thursday kind of proved that he could do both. It was a speech that was sort of very dark in some places and yet very hopeful. Um, and and I think that that was a really good test of um, where he is. And certainly you hear the former vice president talking about how he's ready to take on Trump. And that's not by accident. He wants to show that he is tough enough to do so. Okay, our guest in this uh, half hour is Amy Parnas, uh, who covers the presidential campaign for The Hill. Uh, she is also the co-author with John Allen of uh, New York Times number one bestseller uh, on the 2016 presidential race, Shattered, Inside the Doom Campaign of Hillary Clinton. And I'm sure she and John are probably working on uh, the uh, next to be a bestseller, which will hopefully come out early next year sometime. Uh, anyway, we're going to break for our audio, uh, our listeners, but for our viewers, we'll uh, stay right here with more of Amy Parnas. Our guest half hour is Amy Parnas. Uh, we talked about the Democratic National Convention in the first segment. Uh, now let's turn to the Republicans. 
I thought it was over the weekend. I saw some. Uh, I saw a Trump uh, campaign official uh, talk about the need to um, um, get the press and media to focus more on Joe Biden's uh, shortcomings uh, rather than beating up on the president all the time. And uh, it seems to me it would make a lot of sense. Uh, right now, this seems to me a referendum on Donald Trump's presidency and with the economy in the tank and hundreds of, th- uh, you know, 180,000 Americans uh, dead from the COVID pandemic. Uh, I don't think the Trump campaign wants this to be a referendum on the president. But. Um, looking at the uh, schedule of Republican speakers uh, this week at the Republican National Convention, uh, the president himself is going to speak all four nights. And besides that, uh, there are a number of other Trump children um, or relatives speaking. And it looks to me that the Republican convention will be all Trump all the time. And is that a good way to run a convention when you're trying to uh, uh, stop uh, the media from covering this as a referendum on Donald Trump since it's going to be all in the family? (laughs) It's the way Donald Trump, I think, would run a convention. Uh, It's the way he runs his presidency and the way he runs the White House when he is his best spokesman, he feels. And every day he, he wants to be center stage and he... And it makes sense to me why he would think that the convention should look that way. So, you know, I do think that it it is very much going to be the Donald Trump show in every way. He wants to prove that it is going to be, um, you know, his sort of spectacle. And and he's going to um, do whatever it takes to kind of show that he is the focus. He's in control. And um, I just don't know how effective it will be because he was in a different kind of position last time in 2016, when you had, you were up against Hillary Clinton, they were two very known people, although no one knew what he would be like in government. And now he has a record. And so he can try and he has been trying to sort of, you know, uh, point the finger at Joe Biden and, and kind of make him out to be a weak sort of person He calls him slow Joe. He's very good at sort of the branding of people. And I think that that's sort of what he's going to do this time. He's he's trying to make inroads with the fact that Biden never went to Wisconsin, a very key state in 2016, and why he or someone else didn't go there this time around. And he's basically trying to do everything he can and try to throw whatever against the wall and see what sticks. And so far, his strategy it doesn't seem like he has a strategy. And that's part of the problem. Yeah, you know, I've often got, you know... You know, certainly in the last few months, I I really get the strong impression that rather than running a strategically smart campaign, uh, the Republicans are running a campaign that feeds the president's ego. And I'm not sure that's uh, really good politics, but, um, you know, it's not like I have much influence over the Republicans do, that's for sure. Uh, let's, uh, let me ask you this question. Um, today, uh, a couple of dozen former Republican members of Congress, uh, endorsed Joe Biden 
on the eve of uh, the Republican National Convention. Mm -hmm. uh, last week, there were several prominent Republican speakers at the Democratic uh, National Convention. Uh, most notably, I think, uh, former Ohio Governor John Kasich, uh, Cindy McCain, the widow of the late GOP Senator John McCain, spoke. Uh, Colin Powell spoke in support of uh, uh, of Joe Biden last week, and uh, there, to my uh, looking at the Republican convention, I don't see any prominent Democrats on the Republican convention. I see lots of Trumps, but uh, no prominent Democrats who were coming out in support of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, a lot's been made of the split within the Democratic Party uh, between the uh, Biden wing of the party and the more progressive Sanders wing of the party. Uh, which party goes, you know, there's a, an axiom in presidential politics that the party that's most united uh, usually wins the presidential race. And I think there's some truth to that. Uh, so which of the two parties go go into the fall uh, most united, the Democrats or the Republicans? Well, that's a that's a big question, Brad. But I think that Democrats feel like they were able to so far do that to bring the party together. I think that you are still hearing rumblings of, um, you know, some some disenfranchised progressives who wish that things could uh, look a little differently. But, you know, then again, uh, Joe Biden has been trying to um, bring them into the fold and make sure that, you know, he is talking about climate change, which he did in his address last week. He what is bringing in people who worked on progressive campaigns and is bringing them into the mix. And that is very, very much a concerted effort to make sure that the party is united this time. I don't know how stitched together it is. I have a feeling that if he does become president, it could sort of um, something, you know, could happen and the party could um, look like it isn't as united as it once was during the, the campaign. Um, I think for Donald Trump, it's also a problem. He, on the plus side, I think for him, he has a very enthusiastic base. And that's part of the problem that um, I think the Biden campaign is very aware of the fact that they are enthusiastic. And that's why you saw them try, trying to really raise enthusiasm on their side. But he doesn't have, beyond his base, his base is, is basically all he has. He doesn't have anything beyond that, and that is problematic for him. Yeah, you know, I think that's a good point, Amy. My sense is that because uh, Democrats universally loathe Donald Trump, uh, the party is going to be united uh, until Election Day, uh, and then when we get a glimpse of the Biden cabinet and the Biden agenda for his presidency, all hell's going to break loose within the party between the progressives and the uh, uh, establishment Dems. But uh, I think it's going to be uh, good because, uh, well, you and you're in a position to answer this. It's, it seems to me Joe Biden is doing a much better job dealing with Bernie Sanders than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. Yeah. I saw a picture on the internet last week and it was taken uh, behind the scenes at one of the Democratic presidential debates and it showed uh, Sanders and Biden talking and they both had big smiles on their face. I can't mm -hmm. imagine that happening back in 2016. Am I wrong? 
<laughs> no, you're totally right. I mean, I when I was watching uh, Bernie Sanders speak last week, I kept thinking, I wondering what Hillary Clinton was thinking of that moment and thinking, wishing that he had made such a, a, a strong endorsement for her. I think that, you know, his supporters are very clear that he's always liked uh, the former vice president, that they are friendly. And um, and I think that that it kind of shows in, in so, on some level uh, his support of Biden. And, and he has really gone to bat for him and has tried to um, bring his supporters over and make sure that they don't sit out this election. And, and he said last week during his speech that this is this is really important. And you even heard Hillary Clinton sort of in her no more woulda, coulda, shoulda. Um, that people uh, Amy, I'm sorry. That's all the time we have. I want to thank our guest, uh, Amy Parnas, national political correspondent for The Hill, um, author of the uh, number one New York Times bestselling book about the presidential race. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Brad. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Back to Deadline DC with Brad Bantam. We're in the second half hour of the show, and that means, of course, the provocative progressive political panel. Uh, before I get to the panel, uh, let me uh, read you my preview of the Republican National Convention, uh, which appears in the Hill today. The main source at the Republican National Convention this week will be red meat for red wingers. Appearing on Trump TV will be a litany of right-wing extremists who will play to the Trump base with fear and loathing. Loathing of immigrants and fear of creeping communism. Don't expect to hear much about the elephant in the room, which is the president's feeble and failed fight against the COVID-19 pandemic, which has killed uh, 180,000 Americans and left millions of people mourning for friends and families. The GOP has already lost the House of Representatives during Trump's presidency, and they're in danger of losing the Senate in November. The Trump happy Uh, The Trump-heavy convention schedule proves that the Republican Party is just a shell corporation and a wholly owned subsidiary of the Trump Trump organization. The GOP is in danger of becoming just another of the president's pet projects like Trump University, Trump Casino, and Trump Airlines, which have all crashed and burned before the president turned his reverse Midas touch against his own country. Joe Biden's acceptance speech was heartwarming, empathetic, and soothing. As the United States spirals out of control into chaos, Americans want the calm and reassuring presence that the Democratic nominee offers. Don't expect Donald Trump's acceptance to offer any of those subtle qualities. The president only has anger and invective to offer a nation looking for hope. You can read the rest of my column and my take in the presidential race in the Hill every Monday. Just Google muckrack.com, that's M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K.com, front slash Brad-Bannon. Now it's time for the provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Tim Zink. Tim is a principal at Molecule, a public affairs and business company. 
Tim has spent his distinguished career shaping public policy and politics. His Twitter handle is Green Crew, which denotes his uh, commitment to the environment and fighting climate change. Joining Tim on the panel is, a pro is progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has worked on get out the vote operations for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. Mark is also involved in campaign finance reform and philanthropic efforts uh, for cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. Uh, that's Mark J. G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. Okay, welcome panel. Let's start with Tim. Tim, uh, what's your take on last week's Democratic National Convention. Did it work? Well, I think it was really well executed, Brad. I, I, I have to say that I wasn't sure what to expect on a completely sort of... No one did, uh, Tim. Yes, and uh, I got to tell you, I think they did a hell of a job. And um, I think it was probably my favorite convention after seeing four or five. I think I've been to five conventions, but it's probably the most uh, fun I've had sitting at home watching a convention. Yeah, it was. I think it was a lot of fun, uh, which, you know, leads me to my next question, uh, which I asked Amy Parnas in uh, in uh, the first half hour. Uh, do you think we're going to go back to the traditional uh, national conventions in 2024? Or are we going to have something that's more like uh, what happened this year? I, I would suspect it will have more uh, something more like we, we saw happen this year. Um, it was much more audience friendly than the big ugly room. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mark, what do you think? Do you think we're going to still have traditional conventions or uh, we're going to do something in 2024 like we did this year? OK, I'm not hearing. Sorry, Mark, there we so. go. Uh, oh. So to okay. start things off first, let's uh, hope that we can have uh, in person. <laughs> yeah, events, that's true. Yeah, that's know, a good point, Mark. Um, not to to crap on anyone's parade but uh i know that hong kong there was news today about a second you know someone who was reinfected they could confirm which obviously puts um you know vaccinations uh just there's concerns that they have to overcome and i i don't think that's any small thing to think about because obviously that's that's the crux of what i think the election is going to come down to is who do you have the most confidence in uh, between Donald Trump, who's obviously handled the pandemic to 100, roughly 180,000 American li lives lost, um, the highest in the world, highest infection rate, or Vice President Biden, who obviously, you know, they had a pandemic playbook with uh, him and um, President Obama when they were in office. So, I mean, every almost any question we talk about right now, including this, is defined by that choice. Um, that said, hopefully we get to uh, that point and can have that opportunity. And if we do, I could tell you one thing that I think they're going to keep from this year is the Democratic roll call, because that was so cool to see all the different traditions and everything, um, you know, as Tim and, and you have both talked about at different times. Um, it just I think that was really neat. And it was something that even people who were not involved in politics were talking to me about, like, hey, did you see that roll call? People who I, you know, would not have thought would have seen it because it went viral uh, and people who didn't watch it live were seeing it on places that politics don't usually show up. So I think that's one thing you'll see. But like many other things, I think it'll be a hybrid. Um, I think it would still be 
powerful at times to have speeches in person with a crowd. Um, but then again, you could do that at remote locations too with crowds. Um, so that that's what I think is you'll probably have um, some sort of headquartered city uh, be, that you want to focus on. And from there on out, you can use the beauty of technology to have these multiple spots um, throughout the country. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, and as I said in the first half hour, I'm now proud to be a native of the Calamari State, Rhode Island, <laughs> uh, which was featured on the roll call. Um, anyway, uh, Tim, uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, the uh, point of national conventions is to send a focus message uh, to the voting public about the nominee. Tim, what do you think the focus message of the out of the Democratic National Convention was? Well, I think there's a several of them, but one, Democrats have a plan to address the coronavirus and they have a plan to address the pandemic, uh, num- led by uh, Vice President Joe Biden and his very able team. Uh, that's number one. Number two, we believe in diversity, not just diversity from the talking point standpoint, but look at our convention. Uh, we believe in diversity and uh, we've invested in diversity throughout the you know, many years of the Obama administration and and uh, and beyond, and so that's gonna that's a dramatic change and dramatic difference than the Republican Party. Uh, and I think I think thirdly, we care about people, working people. Working people are the core of the Democratic Party, and we aim to lift up uh, labor unions and develop uh, people's ability to. Uh, create jobs and build a workforce uh, second to none around the world. And, you know, I think if you just think about those three things, and I'd add one more that's super important to the Democratic Party, and that's we intend to fight and be aggressively and aggressively pursue all the issues around climate change. Uh, And um, so that that agenda, uh, you can call it a progressive agenda, a liberal agenda, but it's a Democratic agenda. Well, that's true. Uh, you know, when uh, Joe Biden uh, gave his acceptance speech, uh, he mentioned four crises. And I was glad to see, and I'm sure you were, too, uh, that one of the crises he's mentioned was uh, climate change. I mean, that's uh, that's a new development in our party where they were act- that the party's actually act willing leaders are actually willing to step out and say, hey, America, we got to address this right now. It's our future that is dependent upon that. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, we are uh, in the middle of our usual uh, provocative progressive political panel. Um, our guests today are Tim Zink, who is the principal at Molecule, which is a public affairs and business uh, uh, concern uh, based in Seattle, Washington. Um, also on the panel today is Mark Grimaldi, a progressive political activist and a supporter uh, of Joe Biden. Uh, we're going to go to break in a few seconds, but in the second half hour, uh, there are a couple of topics I want to discuss. Uh, first of all, we're going to uh, discuss uh, the Republican National Convention. And one thing I'm curious about, um, because I haven't made up my own mind yet, is how much of it uh, can we stomach? 
Um, I watched a good part of the Democratic National Convention, and I should watch the Republican National Convention, if nothing else, to write my Hill column and do this show next Sunday. But honestly, I don't know how much I can stomach. But anyway, we'll find out when we get back uh, from these messages. Uh, we're going to stick uh, with our video broadcast, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, with more of the audio uh, portion of the uh, broadcast. Um, after these messages. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Okay, welcome back to our listeners. Uh, we are in the middle of the provocative progressive political panel. Our guests on the panel today are Mark Romaldi, a progressive political activist, uh, and Tim Zink. Uh, who is the principal of Molecule, which is a business and public affairs firm. Uh, let's uh, try this. Uh, the, uh, my, uh, my takeaway from the Democratic National Convention, uh, and especially Joe Biden's acceptance speech, was basically uh, in tough times, uh, we need a soothing and calming presence. Um, yesterday, I saw a, uh, a Trump uh, administration official on one of the um, talk shows, uh, Peter Navarro, and he uh, made the same point that the uh, Democratic National Convention and Joe Biden were reeking with empathy. Um, but what Americans really wanted in these tough times was a tough guy, a tough president. Uh, Tim, what do you think about that? I think I think the I think the American people are looking for somebody a lot different than Donald Trump. They're tired of the chaos, and I think the four-letter word that you saw repeated over and over at the Democratic convention was the use of chaos. And that's what we've experienced the last four years and people are tired of it. And when you have chaos, you have things happen like COVID uh, and you have the lack of attention that an executive needs uh, must have to, in order to run this country. And so, you know, I think there's a, you know, I, I think that the, uh, I think that the president's, um, you know, sort of missed the boat on this one big time. Uh, Mark, what do you think? I think people want to see toughness standing up to Trump. I mean, that's the thing. He 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 can argue he's so tough, but it, it first of all falls on flat ears, you know, when you have a five-time draft dodger and, you know, and and second of all, you know, if that wasn't bad enough, you, you think toughness, you know, you think our soldiers are military families, you know, before you even come into the pandemic and you have that fact about Trump and then you know, you have this Russia bounty story, and it's like, really, if the guy was tough, don't you think he would stand up to Vladimir uh, Putin, who's putting bounties on the heads of our soldiers with the Taliban? So I just, I think, obviously, for him to, to claim he's tough, and 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 then you see him, the guy can't even walk down a ramp. I, I, I think it's it's everything else with Trump, it's smoke and mirrors. Um, so he can claim he's tough, and with certain people, maybe that works, um, that phony tough guy routine, but... Right now, Americans, I think, want a leader. And I'll also, I think the empathy stands in, in huge contrast to Trump because whenever he's asked to show any sort of human empathy, you can tell he, he can't even 
and fake it the right way. You know, just softball question asking about the in that same Axios interview, which was fantastic, by the way. I'd say probably the interview of the year with Trump, um, you know, and right up there with Chris Wallace by Jonathan Swan of, of Axios. For those of yep. you who, who haven't watched it, you can pull it up for free on YouTube uh, through the HBO channel. Um, but he asked him about John Lewis, who had recently passed. I mean, the guy could have said a million things. And, and what was his answer? Oh, he didn't come to my inauguration. So the man has zero empathy. It couldn't be in any more contrast. And then you have 100, over 170,000 Americans dead, you know, from this pandemic. So imagine the ripples through families, you know, if you haven't lost, you know, one of your loved ones, something like more than half of Americans now know someone um, who has had uh, COVID. Um, and it just shows that the, the man is completely out of touch. And I think that, you know, I, I've, I've suffered loss in my life. Um, you know, I lost my mom when I was 17 years old of uh, breast cancer, and it was the worst pain, you know, I've ever felt in my life. And, and that was knowing that she was sick and she was suffering. So I was preparing myself as much as you can to lose someone that close to you, um, yet folks who are getting this this terrible disease and you know they can't even be with their loved ones you know that's the thing I, I remember you know sitting by her bedside and being there with her you know when she was in hospice and being able to be there and, and say goodbye to her you know and 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 just losing her and and just having those moments you know, not being able to, to spend those with your family members to, to, to not only be there for them as they're dying, but to, to have those last moments for yourself, you know, for your family, you can't even be in the same building. You know, there's, there's countless calls from people uh, or people talking about how they had to talk to their loved one over the telephone as they died. I, I, that's, that, that just leaves a mark on your soul that can never be washed off. And he, the, Peter Navarro has, the, the, first of all, I'm sorry, the guy's a prick. I mean, if you watch any of his interviews, he, is. he, he really is. <laughs> he's got zero empathy. He just comes off. He's threatening the FDA recently saying, you know, you got to approve this uh, therapeutic, which and don't worry about the science, basically. God bless the antibody. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, first of all, you take, take anything that guy says with a grain of salt, like anybody who yeah. speaks for You know, I days. agree with you, Mark. I think one of the... You know, the, the president has to offer some solace to Americans when we're in the middle of a tragedy. I mean, you know, close to 180,000 Americans have died, which means millions of Americans are mourning families and friends. Uh, I, there are millions of Americans who have lost their jobs since this pandemic started. And you near, never hear anything from Donald Trump about, well, you know, I understand your pain. Uh, you know, uh, you're suffering. I remember uh, back in uh, 1995 when Bill Clinton was president, um, he had a really rocky time in, uh, after, uh, in 94 and 95. His job rating was in the toilet. Um, and then I remember that the horrible tragedy in uh, Oklahoma City when right wing terrorists blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City and killed hundreds of federal workers and some children who were in the daycare center there. And 
Bill Clinton went to Oklahoma City, he went to the memorial service, and he gave a speech which was so soothing and offered solace to not only people in Oklahoma, but to all Americans. And that was the start of his recovery that led to his uh, reelection in 1996. And Donald Trump just can't pull that off, um, sad to say. Uh, let me ask uh, this question. Uh, last week we had, I thought last Monday uh, in the Democratic Convention was great. You had uh, Michelle Obama as the centerpiece of the evening's festivities, and she gave a great speech like she did in 2016. And if Michelle Obama was the uh, centerpiece of last Monday night's convention, uh, the ideological bookends were uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, who is as progressive as anybody in the Democratic Party. And you also had uh, former Republican Governor John Kasich of Ohio, uh, who is conservative speak. And that raises an interesting question, uh, which I'll ask you both. Uh, Tim, what's more important for the Democrats in the next 70 days? Is it to motivate the base, the Democratic base, or is it to attract uh, swing voters uh, who may have like blue collar workers in the Midwest uh, who may have who voted for Barack Obama in 2016, but uh, in 2008, but voted for Donald uh, Trump in 2016. What's more important for Democrats to reach out to the swing voters or to, you know, galvanize the base? Tim? I think Tim's having some connection issues, Brad, but if you want, okay. I have some thoughts. Oh, here he is. We oh, got you, Tim. Tim's back, I think. Yes. Go ahead. You want to just re-ask that question, Brad? Uh, Tim, uh, you can you hear us? No, I guess not. Mark, let me uh, ask you. What's more important uh, to the Demo Democratic campaign effort, to build on the base or to reach out to swing voters? You know, I think it's a good question, but at this point, I think it's to 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 build on your base to get your base out to vote because unfortunately because of what Louis DeJoy the postmaster general is doing with the post office some people are unfortunately feeling like they're going to be forced to actually go vote in person when you could have just been safely voting by mail and to have someone who's maybe wishy-washy on which candidate to drive them out to the polls to get them out to the polls is is going to be tough but to to i think get your base out to vote is going to be the most important um obviously you want to focus on both but if i had to pick one that's what i would say um also we should tell all our listeners go to vote.org with with all the shenanigans going on with the post office based on your state they'll make sure you're registered and tell you the different ways you can safely vote okay that's all for today friends uh thanks to our guest uh amy parnas of the hill democratic strategist tim zink and progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. I'm here Mondays at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. If the Lord is willing, the creek don't rise, and Trump doesn't declare martial law. This is Brad Bannon. Stay strong, stay safe, and don't drink the Clorox or the Kool-Aid. I don't care what the president says. We'll be back next Monday uh, with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We're there for the small, the family-owned, the storefronts that define our main streets, and the entrepreneurs who support our cities and towns. At Michigan's Credit Unions, local business is our business. 
We're close enough to know your name and built to help you with your individual financial needs. Sometimes even the pillars of our communities need a little support. If you've been turned away by other lenders, we'll work to get your company back to business. Click the banner to find a Michigan Credit Union. Here's some things we're against. Hidden fees, penalty charges, and higher rates that drain your household budget. At Michigan's credit unions, what we do can sometimes be best defined by what we don't do. It's how we offer lower rates on auto loans, lower mortgage closing costs, and a nationwide network of fee-free ATMs. To make every dollar you earn go further, go to a place that values you more. Click the banner to find a Michigan credit union.